one of the richest countries in the world. And therefore, it is definitely a political decision that people have been allowed into this form of existence. They've been, you know, they're allowed to suffer. And that is directly a political decision. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Arshad Isakji and Tom Davis. Arshad is a lecturer in human geography at the University of Liverpool and Tom is assistant professor in geography at the University of Nottingham. This is a really exciting episode for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's our final episode of recording this season and Tiso and I and George obviously have been working very hard in this season for about 12 weeks now. I'm about to have a bit of a break even though you guys will continue getting episodes week after week. So that's quite exciting. We're coming to the end of, um, of this series. Number two, Tom and Arshad are together. Tom came up from Leicester, that's right, isn't it? To stay with Arshad in Liverpool and they isolated so they could do the podcast together. Like, commitment (laughs) to public sociology, I think so. That is very, very exciting. Followed all the COVID rules and isolated, so yes, that's very exciting. Number three why this episode's exciting is it follows on very nicely from our conversation with Lucy Mablin last week about refugees, asylum seekers, Britain and the Home Office. You both sent us two papers to look over. One paper was titled Violent Inaction, the Necropolitical Experience of Refugees in Europe and then Liberal Violence and the Racial Borders of the European Union. Before we get into these papers, please, can you both tell us a bit about how you got to be working with each other and a bit about your scholarship and about the research project that you've been working on over the past few years? We started working with each other in 2015. We were doing PhDs in the same department at the University of Birmingham, um, and we were working on different topics. So I was looking at Muslim identities and subjectivities in the context of emerging counterterrorism policy uh, in Birmingham. Um, wow. So, um, and, and Tom was uh, working on uh, people living informally in and around the Chernobyl exclusion area. So I've got sort of uh, links with uh, research on marginalized communities and migration. And Tom was bringing this perspective of people living informally. So uh, Tom can speak about that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so basically what happened was the we'd seen... This is going back to like 2014. We started seeing um, in not the media, but I think Vice News had like some sort of article about what's happening in Calais. This is before the so-called like Calais crisis, as it was called um, in sort of 2015, 2016. And we started seeing sort of like some information about what was going on. And then we planned to go and visit as a kind of scoping exercise, go to Calais, see what was happening sort of on the ground. And sort of in April um, 2015, um, the day after my PhD viva, we got on a train, got on a ferry, went to Calais, thinking, you know, like a couple of geographers were going to do some geography research, you know, talk to people about migration, why are people making these journeys, and so on and so forth. When we got there, it was just days after the French state had forcibly cleared lots of different migrant camps in the centre of Calais and forced people to to live on one particular site um, a few miles to the east of, of Calais in what became known as the, the Calais jungle, a very racialized term. Um, when we got there, we were just shocked by what we saw and got in contact with um, Serinda Desi, who is an environmental health specialist at Birmingham, um, again, and a friend, and um, started thinking about how we could do a, a project about what was happening in Calais, where at the time there were about what a thousand people living there, and and uh, you know, and like, no toilets or you know, very few toilets, very few um, you know places to get clean water. How we could do a project that 
highlighted what just the evident, clear social injustice that was happening. And then we worked with Syringa and, and, and did things from a sort of um, environmental health uh, perspective. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like as Tom was saying, you know, initially this is just a, like a scoping visit. But then we get there and there are activists in the, in the centre of Calais saying, you know, you need to go to this camp because they've all been displaced there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, they were being profiled effectively if you're, you know, on the street. So, you know, if you don't look like refugees and asylum seekers, i.e. you're white or you're dressed in a particular way, you don't look like it, then you'll be left alone in, in certain places in Calais. But if you do look like it and you do look like you might pitch up tent or start sleep on the street, so it didn't apply to French homeless people who also existed in Calais. It's like, well, you'll be picked up, you'll be forcibly removed to outside the town, like effectively a couple of miles on the edge of edge of town. Um, so it's very much like problems visible in the centre of town, want to push it away, want to push it into this site, which is partly a former toxic chemical dump. And then when we get, you know, we get there and we see, this is horrific. Like, I remember there were four holes in the ground with tarpaulin around them that were the mm. toilets. We found a thousand people. There was mm. like one water point. You had to like, you know, you know like uh, the, the people on the move who were sort of trying to get water, they had to like walk 25 minutes with like trolleys that they're taken from supermarkets with ca- containers that have been used to store chemicals because it's around chemical factories to get water back to their camp. And then you think like, you know, research, like, you know, really sort of keen to make sure that, I mean, we don't simply do something to be able to, just publish something that if we can do something that makes a difference, we're going to try to. And that's where talking with Sarinda was really useful. Mm, because Sarinda yeah. comes from an environmental health background. She was like, well, you know, so she'll do things like, you know, she'll review the env- environmental health protocols for festivals or for restaurants or whatever in the UK. And she said, well, they'll set standards, right? There'll be a set of international standards, how many toilets you're supposed to have per people. There'll be standards of what the air quality will be like. Because you know, my, you know, migrants are going to have to, you know, in Calais, they were having to cook their own food. They're going to have light fires and light plastic to keep warm because none of these things are provided in the fifth richest country in the world. Mm. In the fifth richest country in the world, right? Uh, those sorts of fumes were causing people to have like lung problems. We were coughing. Like we, we'd return for the camp sort of coughing because of mm. the, the sort of air quality. And so we were relating this to Sarinda. And Sarinda was saying, well, there are standards of what you know for accommodation there are standards for how many toilets you should have per population in a refugee camp there are standards uh for for hygiene facilities that need to be provided for people and what we can do is we can i mean let's be honest we knew they were awful the conditions were shit but then we could do a scientific study using environmental health science to say look against your set standards this place is shit so you guys went there, you saw how bad it was. So you're calling up colleagues. Is that to try and ex- you're trying to extract resources, money and expertise to try and find ways to support the people, the people that are in the camp? Yeah, it was a bit more ad hoc. than that. I mean, To some degree, it was ad hoc in that when I was chatting with Sarinda, I was talking to her as a friend about what we'd seen. And then she had that suggestion, which we wouldn't have thought of necessarily as geographers. Right. So she says, mm. oh, hang on, you can do an environmental health over there. So then that was in April. We went back to Birmingham and then we designed the survey. We got a, a very small amount of money, uh, you know, to fund a couple of trips to pay for transport and hotels. Uh, and we worked with doctors of the world who were, were running sort of me- basic medical facilities. A triage. For people, yeah, like triage for people in the camp. So they said that they'd support and endorse the, the report that we would then write uh, and they'd help promote that. And then they could utilise that for advocacy potentially as well. What struck me is... You go to a place and obviously by the logics of it in your paper saying it's been like a displaced problem. Do you think people genuinely don't know these places are going to be terrible? Given that we've had the same idea with prisons, we know they're bad places, they're very bad places, and we, it's another place where we displace problems. Is it that people just don't understand how bad it is, but we know it's going to be bad? How do you reconcile that, guys? One answer to that is that the state, the French state, the EU, wherever you want to sort of pin the responsibility that absolutely knows that this is you know an issue but it's kind of politically useful sometimes to treat um you know the racialized other in a particular way you know if we look at what happened at the end of the the lifespan of the um the Calais camp in 2016 just before um, a french election it was deliberately bulldozed um by the local government um, you know, and by that time, you know, we talked about a thousand people back in, you know, the beginning of 2015. By October 2016, it's of 8,000, 10,000 people. It became sort of an embarrassment 
to the French state, you know, by then. So like it kind of shifted in terms of at the at one point trying to sort of displace this population. And then when, you know, there was a lot of media attention and, and so on, it became untenable and had to be destroyed. And, you know, the camp was destroyed. People were put onto buses and taken to other sort of places around France. But the politics hasn't changed at all in terms of what's happening right now in Calais and Dunkirk. And as we're speaking, there's around about 1,000 people still displaced in the border towns. You know, this is the British border as well, right? Let's not forget the border towns of, of, of Calais and, and Dunkirk. And so, you know, the, the, the state you know, has done things like, you know, got rid of camps, but it doesn't actually change the kind of facts on the ground, as it were, when it comes to like the, the, the broader political situation. For the French state and the British state, and you see this with pretty details of migration policies, which Lucy would have talked about, their primary objective is to stop people from even trying to come to the UK, right? That that's that, and it's the same for the French authorities. They don't want people there. So if conditions are poor, that encourages people to not be there. They could easily have fed the people living in the camp. They chose not to. They chose to provide one meal a day to a section of the camp's population. And the sort of charity, which was it's kind of it's a de facto state organization, they didn't accept donations, right? So they were, they were basically providing meals and not wanting to provide any more. So then you had civil society organization communities or just individuals coming to try and donate more food or refugees and migrants were left to basically try and provide their own sort of, sort of sustenance. So they were de- being deliberately encouraged to leave. And the conditions and the violence that refugees and migrants suffer is then conceived of as a price worth paying. Well, you know, who's paying the price? Well, the refugees are, right? So that's 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 the cost of that. And that, that is recognised and understood by the French state and by pretty particularly the British state with respect to contemporary uh, border policies that are being imagined. But that's thought of as fine because the, the priority is to stop people. Do you think... Like there's almost a kind of racialized logic to it. So the way they treat them in the camps is, is that kind of paternal European attitude. Say that's what it's like over there. It's no different from what their conditions they live over there. They burn plastic. They don't have regular food, regular water. So they're used to it. The Europeans saying, "Look, listen, well, I'm offering a bit better. You're you're close to where you want to be. We have the rule of law. We provide you with this stuff. But in your own state of nature." This is how you live normally. Those kind of racialized, Europeanized, colonial attitudes that I'm seeing that kind of sit behind it, like it's almost normal. So the kind of paradox I'm drawing is with prison reform, like in the, in the 19th century, they were deliberately hard because they thought working class people, that's how you lived. We have to make it harder or it's very similar to make you used to it. Following on from Tiso's point, um, it would be really good once you've addressed that is to bring it back to the broader picture of the EU and the EU's role in this because that's what I think as well like the, the sort of the colonial logics and the dehumanization that Tiso's talking about can we bring that back to the EU and what their role is in all of this? I think re- really great questions and interesting point I think yeah there's definitely a relation between like the prison and and this kind of it's a sort of semi-carceral space um and also, you know, there's a there's a I think a relationship between the idea of the workhouse as well and what was going on in in the Calais jungle in terms of you know only providing as Arshad was saying like deliberately not enough food like keeping the conditions shit so that you know it you know in theory encourages people to self refile to you know go back to the country whence they came you know that sort of logic so I definitely think there's a, a, a connection there that you know needs to be thought about and also in terms of you know um, the thought of like how people um, should be treated according to a certain political logic you know when we spoke to people who were there I remember uh, meeting um, a man who come from Sudan he was saying I can't believe I've come to France and I'm living under a tree like this is France right this is France so, like a full-on awareness obviously like this is like one of the richest countries in the world and therefore it is definitely a political decision that people have been allowed into this form of existence they've been you know uh, kind of let to die maybe maybe not literally to die but you know they're allowed to suffer and that is directly a political decision it's not an accident and it's totally wrapped up in in, in what you're saying Tiso I think yeah absolutely and Tiso you, know, you referenced um sort of state of nature and like, there was this almost like this implication sometimes the refugees and migrants would, would vocalize and saying like do you think that back home we live in conditions like this that this is natural to us or anything like that you know because in a way, by being left to exist in these conditions, there was this implicit 
well, that's kind of what they deserve and they'll be able to make do. And, that, and to be honest, that's one of the reasons why we're a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit uncomfortable with some of the narratives about Calais, which are, isn't it amazing that they set up their own shops and they made their own shelters and stuff there? Who the fuck's saying that? There are quite a few people. Dickheads. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell. Honestly. Give me the number. Give me the number. I'm going to find them. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I mean, like, oh, like, you know, people set up little barbers and then they're activists that set up bookshops and stuff like this. And it's like, so you can see that they're actually creative and they've got agency. And my answer to that is like, who the fuck doubted in the first place that yeah, they had yeah, agency? Yeah, yeah, I never yeah, doubted yeah. that they had agency. Like, you know what? So we want to put the, I mean, I think our position was very much wanted to put the the, folk, the sort of critical lens onto the state and the European Union and the French state rather than sort of say, well, isn't it really interesting that migrants and refugees have agency? Because yeah, you know, we know that, right? They're not, they're not simple victims, right? And I think that's important to remember, but I think there is a danger of sort of then romanticizing like, oh, isn't it amazing that this guy's built a hut out of wood? And it's like, you know, like, you know, I, I think there's a problematic sort of discourse around that as well. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's important definitely to to centre resistance. And it was a space of, of political resistance in, in some senses. Um, but you've got to do that alongside talking about the the political nature of these spaces in that there's also spaces of suffering and violence and, and so on. And sometimes in, in some of the uh, narratives about these places, that's kind of forgotten. And instead it's this kind of, oh, this was a, you know, a great space of hope and so on. Having said that, we have met um, activists elsewhere um, who are doing am- amazing work in, you know, for example, the Balkans and other places that hadn't necessarily been to the Calais jungle, but it's kind of was held up as you know, a, a really important space of um, resistance, a kind of inspirational um, experience. Yeah, I mean, because there was mutual aid, there were charities that were, that were there and so forth. But doing incredible that, work. I yeah, mean, I'm doing- not disparaging it, but just the point of focus has got to be on, like, the state let's talk about the eu so how has this been allowed so we're recording in april now and last week a number of migrants i think it was like 120 130 migrants drowned the eu knew about it i was sort of having a conversation with my partner being like oh my god like this has happened again and my partner was like yeah but what is the eu in this and I was like, well, the EU, it's the EU. <laughs> like, and I kind of didn't have the language to kind of explain that. So can you can you help us on this? Well, I think, I mean, the EU at the end of the day is a collection of nation states that act in a sort of collective self-interest or at least aspire to. Um, and there are deficiencies even internally within the EU. But that going back to that Stuart Hall paper is quite interesting because almost 30 years ago, he's writing, I think, in Marxism Today. And he was suggesting that the... Uh, the project of expanding cooperation uh, and political movement between EU states was a way that Europe was finding to try and move beyond colonialism. But they were ignoring this critical question of how Europe would treat, not internally the populations within the nation states within the European bloc, but the populations outside it. And that was going to come to a head. And I think it it very much has come to a head. Um, Because... You know, I think that in Britain in particular, because of the debates around Brexit of the last, you know, what, six, seven years that are ongoing, we have a somewhat romanticized notion of what uh, Europe and the European Union is. So on the one hand, we know, right, the Leave campaign and the Farages and all that kind of stuff, like they were overtly racist at times. And racism and anti-immigration sentiment was a fundamental part of their political project. We know that. But it doesn't follow that the European Union is somehow some sort of bastion of anti-racism, that it should be praised for being inclusive or diverse or any old crap like that. The European Union is routinely engaged and involved in delivering racial violence to people who wish to move towards Europe to find sanctuary, to find shelter, or to find the means of living a life, you know, because... There are people who are on the move because they're fleeing conflict, before, because they're fleeing persecution, and also because they're suffering from poverty. Some people like to focus, just, you know, sort of just on asylum seekers and refugees, but there are on the people. People are on the move for various reasons. 
So yeah, so the EU, European Union is, you know, delivers racial violence and it delivers it in various ways. Right? In the Mediterranean, it simply lets people drown. And you mm-hmm. were referring to that earlier um, because, again, um, the primary objective of border policy is to make sure that asylum seekers and migrants don't come to Europe, despite the fact that the European Union hosts the lowest proportion of refugees and asylum seekers compared to any continent mm-hmm. per population. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the wealthiest continents in the world, right? So it's so important that yes, we will let people drown. And if there's no ocean to passively drown people, if they're trying to cross a land border like in the Balkans, we will physically beat them. Mm. I think of the EU as the ever proficient technocrat. Now, because it's the EU and it's a social construct and a political construct, it has no national army, right? It uses the same influence, the same kind of tactics that the kind of East India Company use. We're using law, regulations, and can't be accused of that physical violence, but it is very good at being technically violent. And it's that technical violence that kind of leads into what you spoke about, that liberal violence. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the conversations we have had are animated by this discussion is, how are we allowed to keep these contradictions, right? How, mm. uh, how are people allowed to imagine the European Union in this particular progressive way? And yet these things happen. And oftentimes people do know that it happens. And yet we still think about the European Union as a really progressive institution, uh, bastion of anti-racism and all the rest of it. Um, and then that brings us to the question of, where, well, how do we deliver violence in liberal societies? How do liberal states then de- deliver violence? Uh, and specifically racial violence. And it's often the case that that violence is hidden away, as you said, in in bureaucratic structures, right, in bureaucratic processes. And sometimes it's by putting a distance between the principal actors, you know, because this is not being done out of Brussels directly. It's not being done in Brussels. It's not being done in the northern European capitals. We're deliberately making sure that the EU can enact border policy around the edges of the European Union and in countries not even in Europe, right? So the EU funds violent border policies in Libya, right? It funds, you know, in Chad. There are European Union-funded pushbacks of migrants and refugees from eastern Turkey into Iran. Like one of our co-authors, Caroline Augustafa, has been to Why? Why? Because you, you don't want them making onward journeys and potentially coming towards Europe. And that is the primary objective, right? And and you get to then distance yourself yeah. from those egregious activities and then nurture this kind of romanticized version of what you think Europe is and what Europe means. And, and in many ways, like what we're seeing with this is not so much... I would say it's not so much a contradiction within liberalism, like it echoes liberalism through the ages as an ideology. Yeah, well, I was just thinking in terms of how sort of liberal violence is kind of playing out. You've got it sort of different forms of it. And we talked earlier about what's happening in Calais and, you know, it's it's not so much distance, but the forms of violence you can't necessarily see in that people aren't as much being physically assaulted in Calais. You know, if you think back to when there was a large camp there, but a lot of people, and we found out through doing environmental health research, a lot of people had gastrointestinal illnesses. So they had the the, the shits, vomiting, etc. Because of the conditions that they were facing, a lot of people were hungry. About a fifth of the population had scabies because of overcrowding. Now, that is a form of violence as a result of political decisions. Now, when similar kind of political technology is kind of used against people in other parts of Europe, in the Balkans, for example, the violence can be more overt. And, and something that, that's happening there, a different kind of liberal violence, is that, you know, every day, um, I, you know, sometimes hundreds of people are being physically pushed back, it's called, so pushed out of EU space into Bosnia and Serbia, um, often you know, chain pushbacks happen as well. So, you know, the police will arrest um, people on the move in Italy, give them to police in Slovenia, Slovenian, Slovenian police drive them to the border of Croatia. Croatian police do the same to Bosnia, beat the shit out of them, take their mobile phones, smash them, their mobile phones, take their shoes away and all kinds of other violence that are, you know, I'm not going to talk about and push people physically across the border, often in the dead of night, and this is happening on a scale that is, is, is absolutely huge. And, you know, EU actors know about it. It's being funded by, um, essentially by EU money as well. So 
yeah, there's all kinds of uh, forms of violence happening that, you know, can be related to, to what we're talking about. What also strikes me is the kind of historical parallels here. When we're looking at the east, the eastern border of Yorkshire around Croatia, this has always been a, 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 a an area of multi-ethnic, multi-crosses, and an area of empire, Habsburg's empire, the Ottoman Empire. They are very well versed at keeping the east out. So, and they have a long history about it. So, I think uh, Victor Orban talks about it very. It's very present. Is about talking about this all the time. The Wing Hazars and all this kind of stuff. This is very present to them. So. They understand that form of technology to repel the outsider. When we move into Northern Europe, you have to be a bit more sophisticated because they regard themselves still within the hierarchy of European nations at the top. When the EU comes together, it's to stop Germany and France fighting, basically, right? And Britain is like, like these are the top boys, right? Irony is Brexit, Britain seems to remove themselves from that, that, that league table. And I think it's come to terms of, but... Like I said, I, the histories tell me that this is something that Europeans always do and they haven't really changed much, really. I think that's totally correct. I think you draw some really important points out about how uh, in the region of the Balkans and, um, and and Southern Europe, that it's often been grounds of imperial contestation between different empires. And the violence that takes place against migrants um, against refugees, sometimes were racialized as being as being um, Muslim or you know broadly Muslim in character as well, and sometimes that is evoked by officers who beat them. Um, that you know the scarf, you know there, there are you know violence reports where you know some, a woman's scarf is mentioned as you know that doesn't belong here, or people who are doing who are delivering the violence, uh, often Croatian security forces, you know will specifically mention the fact that they might have in the past, um, like, you know, Muslims killed my my father or my grandfather, or, you know, we had war against you people and you people don't belong here. You know, so that is, those histories are evolved, especially in relation to sort of liberalism. I think it's, it's important because, of, you know, because that perpetual question is how, how is this allowed to perpetuate within liberal society? And then you have to look at liberalism itself. And when people think about liberalism, they have a vague general idea about it meaning freedom, freedom of political organization, freedom of speech, freedom of property, which is very important in liberalism. But to be honest, like, you know, most political projects claim to be emancipatory, like most claim to deliver freedom. The question is, what's your definition of freedom? Freedom for whom? Mm -hmm. And freedom how? Oftentimes, liberalism as it was in practice, in reality and in history, freedom for whom meant freedom for colonizers and people at the metropole to be able to extract profit and accumulate profit at the cost of those who were colonized, right? And how are we to achieve that freedom? Through imperial expansion, right? So you have all these kind of ideas about uh, liberal freedoms that people should have, and they present themselves as universalist but they absolutely are not universalist at all. In fact, they're used as justification for domination because we have this notion of civilization. That's what comes in says, well, because we have these great liberal ideas, we are civilized. And, you know, people have looked at um, uh, David Theo Goldberg, he writes about um, Carlyle's racism, even people like John Stuart Mill, you read it on Liberty, and he has this kind of caveat where he says, um, you know, actually, this only applies to people with their correct mental faculties. So it doesn't apply to children. And it doesn't apply to people who are barbarians in the colonies. And he actually makes this point of saying that, you know, actually, you know what, they, they should be happy to have despots rule over them. Mm. So the, I would say it's not even a contradiction within liberalism. It's a part of liberalism. And we see that now echoed in contemporary border policy where you can beat the shit out of these uncivilized people who come to to come to try and live and survive in our civilized and ordered land i love that you had that to come to bring to the episode because you're dropping the john stuart mill and you know that tiso brings him up you knew he brought he came ready t <laughs> we were talking about the eu and this idea that it, it kind of is it's ever present, but also have this, this tension within it. Like this is people who are anti the EU based on universal abstract principles, right? Irony is when the immigrants come here, they believe in these abstract principles that they're going to be have that freedom. But when they come here, you have that particularism of liberalism, like say freedom applies only to me. This tension that sits at the Enlightenment that's kind of been exported through colonialism is everywhere. So the immigrants come here like, when I speak to my grand about coming here, they, they think they're going to be treated equally because of human rights uh, and or, or they're going to be a citizen of man. And it's never that way. 
But equally, within the EU, people are complaining about this abstract monster, the EU, and this kind of this it has no history. It's not grounded in anything, and it's, that's what scares people. This 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 ever present universalist thing. But we are our nations are grounded in a history, uh, a religion, or whatever it will be. Yeah. I, I, listen, guys, I love you. I love. I love it that you like moral theory. Yes, <laughs> it's, 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 it's made my Friday. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really interesting about this conversation, and I think actually, like the person that I think checked me on this, it's value. I, I was talking to him about Brexit, and I was like, "What are we gonna do? Like, this is really bad." He was like. Chantel, like in his very articulate way, Chantel, the thing is, for us at Racialized Outsiders or for us minorities, it's kind of indifferent. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, the racial violence of the EU or the racial violence of Britain outside of the EU, like it will evolve regardless and it will remain present. Just come back to your point, what you were talking about. Arshad, in terms of me being checked on that about romanticizing the EU, we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast. Like, I voted for Remain because I saw how Brexit had been used for this very, very visceral nationalism and racism. I know you guys get that and you understand that. But I think thinking about Britain beyond the EU now outside the EU it is definitely there is definitely an opportunity for political education around the EU around what it means the violence enacted by the EU that has always been happening so we could still have understood this while still being in the EU but being outside the EU I think it gives us an opportunity um, to do that this that being said the Lexit argument is of it's clearly emancipatory. Like there's no doubt about it. It's clearly one that's grounded in about being outside of something which enacts racial violence. Like you guys are teaching us about that just in this episode now. However, you it's the the nationalism is so strong in Britain. I don't believe that there could have been an argument for leave that was truly anti-racist emancipatory that worked alongside of Farage Cummins Johnson Gove's project I just don't think it was possible because they were playing into some of the most awful awful interpersonal racisms that we I've seen in my lifetime and like I just go back to like after after Brexit the amount of times that like me like I'm a middle-class light-skinned black woman like getting told on multiple occasions to go back home like being like physically harassed on public transport because of brexit again i, I want to come back to the point and say that structurally like i'm okay i'm here i'm not in camps my um position is much more secure than the people we're talking about it's such a frustrating thing hearing about the violences of the EU, it was so difficult to be able to form an argument about being outside of it that didn't rely on racism and nationalism. Last week's episode with Lucy is how do we get beyond it? As we're talking about violence, the state controls the monopoly on violence. So how does the EU control this violence? How does does it have a monopoly on violence? Because it's not a thing. It transcends the nation state, right? So it is a supranational body. So how does it control this violence and how does it enact this violence if it's not a state? It's a really good question. I think one answer to that is sort of following the money. If you look at, you know, the amount of money that EU states and the EU have put into border control in, in you know, we're talking about the Balkans, um, for example, we took millions of, of pounds used to enforce it. And, and also, you know, We've got to think about the role of the nation states within the EU as well, in terms of kind of to understand, speaking about the case study that we talk about in this paper in Croatia, like why are Croatian police systematically beating up and expelling thousands of of people over the years? It's it's to do with the EU and, and geopolitics in the... Croatia right now is is part of the EU. It's not part of the Schengen area of free movement. It's 
signed up to be part of that club of free movement. When it is part of that club, it will be formally defending the external border of that area of free movement. So what the Croatian state is doing is kind of flexing its muscles and saying, look at us, we can defend the border. You know, we'll do we'll do anything. And, you know, we've seen statements from um, Angela Merkel and, and, and so on saying, you know, that are oh, the Croatian uh, border police. They're doing a great job, you know. But we know, having spoken to people in, in, in the EU, they, they know that this violence is happening and they know about this geopolitical geopolit- situation. So, you know, it's um it's connected to sort of different scales of, of, of politics. That was such a good response to Tiso's question there. Follow the money. Like they want to be in the club. How do I be in the club? Be as violent as possible. Be as border as much as possible. Yeah, bruise yourself. We spoke to uh, one official who worked for the European Union that succinctly put it that if you want to join the Schengen zone, you've got to bare your teeth. That's mm. how they put it. So they were well aware of, of the violence going on and saw it mm. as... Well, that's one of the functions if you're going to be on the edge of the of the Schengen zone. Uh, to buy into that club, you're going to have to be responsible for defending the external border. Um, and they're provided with the resources to do it. If you just think, you know, just in Croatia alone, between 2014 and 2020, you're looking at 108 million euros spent on border management, and then a, a further 23.3 million euros of emergency funding. So the sums involved are, are vast. You know, they have access to drones, night vision technology. There's a plane that does aerial photography to track migrants going through. Like this is, you know, there's a huge amount of European Union funding that goes into enabling the interceptions that take place in Croatia. And obviously, once they're intercepted, then you get the pushbacks, which are illegal. If someone says, I wish to apply for asylum, Mm -hmm. they should be allowed to apply for asylum, uh, you know, both through EU law and through the Geneva Convention. But that is completely ignored. And, And the people who do border violence monitoring there, you know, ask all the people who've been the victims of violence, like, what happened? Did you say you wanted to claim asylum? And they all say, yes, we want to claim asylum. That claim is ignored. And then they are put into a van. Uh, they are arrested. And at, at night, when people can't see, that's when they're driven to the border, pushed back, sometimes beaten and pushed back. As, as Tom was saying earlier, almost, you know, you, you, know, you know, universally, they are basically, they have their phones broken. Often they have their possessions stolen, stripped naked, stripped naked. Sometimes. They have their clothes taken away, shoes taken away, so then their feet will be injured as they walk back to camps, which are many miles inland in places like Bosnia and Serbia. Again, all of these injuries, just to discourage them from trying again. Some people will try 20, 30 times, pushbacks each time, try and recover, heal, and then and and, that, and that's known as the game. You know, to, to try and get into Europe is known as the game but, uh, among among migrants and refugees. We we went to Brussels. Um, God, before COVID, what, two years ago now, right, to, to speak to some officials about this, along with um, representatives from an amazing organisation called No Name Kitchen, who do some of this um, border violence monitoring. One of the things that struck me was, like, firstly, how basically government officials already know about this, right? Secondly, we're outside the European Commission, and there are slices of the Berlin Wall there, like, in encased in, in like, plastic with a, as a little monument to freedom and, and breaking down borders and like, you know, the end of history or, or whatever. And I'm thinking, hang on, how can you on, on the one on the one cheek say, oh, right, yeah, we're, we're, you know, bring down borders. On the other cheek, you know, you're literally building, yeah, I think like geographer Rhys Jones said, you know, a thousand kilometres of new borders have been built by EU authorities since the Berlin Wall came down. So that's just like, classic irony of of the eu i think in that in that sense but let's not let britain off off the hook as well by the way do you think then the eu is functioning as intended right it's seen and set up primarily as a club to trade given the experience of post-world war ii the displacement of people the movement of people the, the disintegration of empires it needs to ensure its own survival of this trading club it's all about making money the making money enterprise was was a kind of continuation from legacies of colonialism, which they had to give up in the post-war period and up until the present day, right? This club, this function is intended. They will do whatever they need to do to keep functioning. So it's very pragmatic. So, for example, France's relationship with the Francophone, yeah, the African countries, how it's yeah, it's changed its relationship. It's still a colonial relationship, but it's a shifted relationship. Britain's relationship with the EU itself, it still comes in terms of, but they will work stuff out because this club needs to keep going. And it's like I said, it's functions attended. It will be violent to who it needs to be violent. But as long as as long as there's no war between European states, 
because 1945 was a fuckery for them, right? It's a fucking madness. We still talk about it today, right? It's a madness. I'm so angry. Like, I'm getting hot. <laughs> I'm getting hot. I'm getting hot because I'm so fucking angry. But, like, this is just disgusting. It's just disgusting. Like, I just can't fathom can we talk about some people that are doing some brilliant work resisting this stuff that you've worked with when tom was talking about going to brussels i remember when we went to brussels they just had european elections and they had these massive posters up saying i can't remember the exact number of people like you know 30 or 40 million people voted for stronger borders like you know because you've got to remember that the stuff that the eu does is also in response to people in its various, you know, constitutive nation states who are embracing a particular type of nationalism, often a particular type of white nationalism. And European Union is responding to that. So these are, you know, there are, uh, you know, structural racisms there, latent racisms within countries, you know, such as that which engendered Brexit. And, you know, Chantal, I mean, I, I agree with you about Brexit. There was no way that Brexit in the way that it was pitched and within the conditions and context was pitched that it was going to be somehow some sort of leftist or progressive project. The prospects of that for me were, were null. Like, you know, I, I, and, and for the same reasons I would have uh, voted remain for, for what it's worth. Um, but I think that, yeah, we should talk about hope and, and we should also probably talk about praxis. I think about doing research with migrants, refugees as well, because I think that's a kind of important thing as well, but I mean, on hope and stuff, I mean, I don't know if uh, you want to, yeah, I mean, I just I think it's really important to emphasise that, you know, we've presented quite a, a bleak picture because it's important to talk about that sort of stuff. But at the same time, a lot of the reason that we know what's going on is because of organisations like um, Border Violence Monitoring Network, which is like a collection of amazing grassroots organisations that operate mainly in, in the Balkans, also in, in uh, Greece and Italy and other places as well. And what they've done over the last few years is document, take down testimonies of people who have been pushed back. And the scale of this is unbelievable. Over the last few years, I checked on the website just now, borderviolencemonitoring.eu, they've collected 1,042 testimonies of pushback. Sometimes those pushbacks involve over 100 people at a time. And these are just the ones that there happen to be activists right there taking down that testimony. Just to remind the listeners... The point about the issue with pushback is that that isn't what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to like just to just to make that clear again, you're supposed to allow people into the country. Essentially, in order to claim asylum in a country, you first have to get there. You have to physically step foot in that country in order to claim asylum. That's why, um, you know, think about the coverage of channel crossings last year, um, people trying to get to the UK, 98% of whom claimed asylum upon arrival, you know, because there is no safe and legal route. So you've got this tension on the one hand, and this goes back to sort of tensions of liberalism, I guess. On the one hand, you've got countries signing up almost universally to these international conventions about, um, you know, claiming asylum and, and, and refugee rights. On the other hand, pretty much every nation state, including the collection of nation states, the EU, does almost everything in its power to physically stop people crossing the border. And sometimes what happens, as in the case in, in the Balkans, sort of out of sight, out of mind, in the dead of night, that sort of covenant doesn't work and they just physically push people back across the border which is called refoulement it goes against international um, law to do that you should by rights have your asylum claims processed and luckily there are um, some organizations local organizations as well as other grassroots groups who are um, monitoring this And, and one of them we've been working with is called no name kitchen and they do this kind of like monitoring the the testimony of of people on the move and they also um distribute um food and and uh and clothing and so on but there's another sort of difficulty with the testimony of pushback survivors in that if you are essentially illegalized through the process of claiming asylum i.e you have to cross a border which is an illegal act you know i've got scare quotes there um you are preordained when you are on the other side of that border as a criminal because you cross the border. And therefore, your testimony 
I was beaten up by the Croatian police, I didn't have my asylum claim processed, can be disregarded because you've been preordained as a criminal. So it's just a perfect circle of fuckery that's enforcing the border in, in, in that sense. But yeah, I was supposed to talk about hope then. I think it's also really important that, you know, I mean, scholars of migration refugees, especially if you're working with marginalised populations, I guess this can be extended to other people who are marginalised as well, like really look into their own practice. Because, look, as researchers, right, research can be extractive and exploitative. I'll be honest, I'm not speaking for Tom here because, you know, Tom's great at everything he does. Like, if it wasn't for, um, if it wasn't for the papers written, like, I probably wouldn't have a permanent job, right? So that makes you think about, well, same here. you know, what, you know, we get something from doing this research, mm-hmm. however well-intentioned mm-hmm. we might be more broadly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes with responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I've had academics say in the past that, oh, well, you know, academics simply, they should bear witness. But to be honest, I think, especially when you're dealing with marginalized populations, whose subjectivities and whose oppressions you don't necessarily share, that there comes an extra responsibility to that. And I think we have to be, thinking constantly about our place as researchers, um, especially, you know, the more privileged we are, the more there is a compulsion to think about it. And I think that that's one of the things which has drawn us towards working with activists uh, on the ground, for instance, mm-hmm. activists from the region. I mean, the, the work that we're hoping to do in the next couple of year, years will be enhanced massively by working with Jelena bradovich Wojcik, who has more extensive experience of doing research in the Balkans, for instance. That is really important. And to recognize that, you know, to our sometimes Western eyes, activism looks a particular way. It has a particular sort of set of symbols that we recognize, but there will be communities, and there are communities, people, religious organizations in Bosnia, in Croatia, who let migrants and refugees come, stay over, they donate food, let them sleep in their houses. This is activism, right? Mm-hmm. This is resistance. And sometimes we don't see it as resistance. And, and that's really important. But it's also important that we link up struggles, right? Because like we're, we're sat here now in Liverpool, right? And if we want to have meaningful, if we want to do some meaningful good for the communities or the trans, as transient as they may be, right? Transient communities that we are researching, well, it's very difficult to do that, especially in a time of COVID, right? But refugees and migrants are not simply refugees and migrants. A year or two before they end up in a camp in Bosnia or Calais, they would have been in another place, in another context with their own struggles. And if they make it through here, we've known people who have now resettled in the UK, right? They will be, again, in a particular context, often more likely to be unemployed, more likely to be underemployed, more likely to be exploited. I mean, that's the story of the refugee. Well, as a refugee trying to cross borders, they're disposable. But then if they get here and they try and resettle, resettle, they're exploitable, right? So workers, you know, workers' struggles are not disconnected from refugee struggles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are some academics, which, which I have seen, if, if you'll have to say, I mean, there are some academics who uh, might think it's enough to sort of talk about violence and oppressions of marginalized group. And then you sit in these kind of bourgeois academic circles saying, oh, isn't, isn't it also very bad? Isn't it also very bad? We're better than this. And that kind of facile <laughs> thing. And then even when they're close to home or even in their own institutions, they can't recognize a worker struggle or how that might be related. And, you know, you just think, no, fucking do one. Fucking do one. Like these things are related. And if you can't do, if you can't even reach that level of practice, you know, do something else. I have no time for for people who, who say that, well, there comes no responsibility at all with doing work that closely with people whose rights are being abused in that way. I think mm-hmm. it does come with responsibility. I think that we we don't always necessarily do enough. We have to constantly mm-hmm. keep asking ourselves questions about uh, how we're liaising with local communities, how we're liaising with marginalized populations. I think that's, that is really important in order to do uh, work like this uh, ethically. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Listen, drop the mic. Drop the mic. Drop, drop the, mic. the mic. That's a <laughs> mic drop. I said you're getting a surviving society mic drop. I feel like you put the surviving society energy as well, cussing academics, <laughs> telling no, them. No. To- <laughs> 
you got to help your people, man. Be reflexive, man. Help your people. The question they ask Chantal and us, Chantal and I, all the time: How are we going to grow the podcast? How are you going to grow the podcast? The logic of neoliberalism, like it's some kind of vertical growth. It's about that horizontal growth, that kind of multi-directional, helping everyone, man. Helping people who can't help themselves, man. I say it sometimes when I go to conferences, like where there's like kind of bourgeois academics, often white academics, like enact this sort of paternalism because you're talking to a similarly privileged audience mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. of like you know oh i'm a good person because i researched this and that's the, mm-hmm. that becomes the sort of moral center of the work that done, that's done and it's not good enough and and on that note i think i i'd highly recommend a book by fiorenza picotta called uh the colonialities of asylum which is excellent at sort of real really doing introspection which is unusual for academics in this field and it's yeah. really well written so um, I, big I love that. Things. Love that reflexivity. Love that introspection. It's so important. And I love what you said about how you guys are always checking each other and how you're engaged in this work. And like, it won't always be perfect. Like, it won't. There will be flaws to it. But I guess the thing that Tito and I try to talk about on this show, and we try to do in our quote-unquote praxis, is by leaning into those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that in a kind of like fetishizing um, reflexivity in any way. It's kind of being uncomfortable within the work of marginality um but trying our best to find ways to both communicate what what the struggles are um but again yeah all this stuff is imperfect but i think what you guys are saying is like when we have researchers or academics that are kind of like well it's not my it's not my it's not my responsibility or like i don't need to do this or oh no actually i've done this like just not up for that defensiveness particularly when we're in such a big crisis we're in a crisis absolute crisis right now yes. guys that was incredible loved it i like the research i like the preparation i like i love it all I like the energy of all. love it love it high energy love the energy love it we, we didn't say earlier we are massive fans of this yeah, show yeah, yeah. like we're always talking about this show um i like for example the other day i was doing a lecture on globalization of population i put um, lisa tilly's show yeah, on yeah. about thomas malthus it was dead good and so you gave that to students to listen to and stuff so like the fact that you've done this like through a pandemic as well i mean like amazing oh Thank you so much. No, we really appreciate it. I like the fact that you guys are casual and unpretentious. Because, <laughs> like, because like you know, sometimes in academic circles, it's like speaking in a particular way and all that shit, like, goes along with, like, oh, they must be worth listening to because they mm-hmm. speak in a particular way. And I, I got no time for that. And I love the fact that you're, because it's like, you know, people look at what you do and, and listen to podcasts and say, that was really fucking good. And they don't sound like bourgeois, disconnected academics. And actually, it's really fucking interesting. And students like it as well. I put your stuff on reading this. And if you don't mind. Aww, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us this season. I can't believe we've come to an end. Obviously, you're going to get another episode next week because we'll be recording the new series. But um, yeah, thank you so much, listeners. Arshad and Tom, thank you so much. Patreon's another episode for you over on the Patreon now. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 